0: Let's read Galatians 6, and I'm actually going to start in the end of Galatians 5, verse 26, because if I were, and I'm not, responsible for a, a translation or structuring of the translation, I would have made verse 26, verse 1 of chapter 6, and there are a lot of and scholars who would agree that it should be part of chapter 6. So, let's start there. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. One who has taught the Word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap, if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we worship you as the great creator and sustainer of all things. Jesus, we worship You as the one true light, the great Savior of the world. Holy Spirit, we worship You as the great sanctifier of God's people. Glory to the Father, glory to the Son, glory to the Holy Spirit, and would You have mercy upon us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. So, what's happening here? You, You see how intensely practical... Paul is being here at the end of this letter. And, and what Paul is doing here is he's showing us, by the way that he's writing, that the gospel, as I've just mentioned before, transforms us. It changes us. So the gospel, when, when your life is changed by the gospel, and when I talk about the gospel, I'm talking about all that God did in Jesus to save sinners, the the the, the truth of Galatians is this. The message of Galatians is that there is grace for guilty sinners. That's the, that's the message. Grace is the message of Galatians for guilty sinners. And what grace does is it saves and transforms. And so what Paul begins to do is he begins to give us an example of how the grace of, of the gospel affects our behavior. And And what we're going to see is the things that he actually calls us to, we actually resist. And the only way you will ever become the kind of person that is described here is that the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ changes your life. You You need to be a new creation, as he speaks of. You can't do it. And so what we're going to see right away is how we have this heart condition that needs to be addressed at the behavioral level, but that heart condition is addressed at the identity level. And you're going to see both of these things. He starts with the heart condition that's resisted at the behavioral level, but solved at the identity level. When we talk about behavior, we're going to talk about bearing one another's burdens. And that's what Paul's talking about. When we talk about identity, we're going to talk about what you boast in. Because what you boast in is where you find your identity. So let's take a look at this heart condition and and what the Gospel wants to produce in us at the behavioral level. Paul begins by saying, let us not become conceited. Provoking one another, envying one another. When Paul talks about being conceited, he's talking about what we talk about when we talk about being conceited. He's talking about being full of pride. Some translations actually call it vainglorious. It's to be filled with, it's to be consumed with self, it's to be consumed with self important thoughts. It's to, it's to glory in self. This is who we are, apart from Jesus. And in our pride, we provoke others. And in our pride, we envy others. How is pride manifested in our lives? Well, in some ways, it's manifested in what we think of like just that raw self-righteousness. Raw arrogance. Arrogance. Pride is the person who acts says sometimes and thinks I'm better than you. We do that. We might not say it in polite company. But we have those thoughts. But the person that envies is different than that. They don't think of themselves as proud because they look at others and they and they're envious. They look you look at others and you are not arrogant, but self-pitying. You look at others and, and don't think, I can beat you. What you think is, you can beat me, and I resent you for that. You can beat me, and I hate that idea. So we're either one or the other. We're either the person that walks around beating our chest, or we're the person that walks around thinking that everybody else is better than us. And they're both conceited. They're both self-absorbed. And Paul is saying that the gospel wants to change that about you. Because if you're self-absorbed, you'll never do all of these things. You'll never bear one another's burdens You'll walk around thinking you're something and you'll never get around to doing what God has called you to do, which is love and serve others. That's how our freedom in Christ is expressed. Remember Galatians 5. So Paul talks about this idea of being vainglorious and the gospel wants to change you. So he's saying, if the Gospel has changed you, then don't go back to that way of thinking. Don't become conceited again. Don't provoke others. Don't envy others. Instead, you should bear one another's burdens. If anyone's caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What's he saying? Are you saying what he's been saying? He's saying that the gospel so transforms us that we take our eyes off of ourselves and we actually can help, love, and serve others. Do you want to know, do you want an indication as to whether the gospel has really had a transforming effect on your life? Ask yourself this, am I loving? Am I serving? Are there any examples in my life where I am bearing someone else's burden? What does it mean to bear one another's burdens? Well, the the idea here is that someone is trying to carry something that's very heavy. Let's say they're trying, we'll just use use 100 pounds to make it simple. If someone is trying to carry a 100-pound box of something, you bear their burden by going over and grabbing the other side of it. You pick it up and you both carry 50 pounds. Or you could make it easier. You could get four people to each take a corner, and each of you will carry 25 pounds. The point of bearing another's burdens, though, Paul's point here is if you want to bear someone else's burden, you're going to have to carry some of their weight. And that's something that we tend to not like to do. I'm glad to help you if I don't have to bear any of the weight. I'm glad to help you if if your problems aren't going to get me dirty. When we live that way. When we live which is which is This is is where the rubber hits the road. This is what we resist. But when we live in a way where we don't want to get dirtied or bothered or burdened by other people, we are demonstrating that we are vainglorious. We're demonstrating that we're conceited and selfish. And Paul is saying if the gospel has changed you, you're a new creation and you won't live that way anymore. So what Paul envisions is a church of people who are willing to bear one another's burdens. Not in in a way that we can manage it so that it doesn't actually, so none of the burden of your stuff falls on me. This is convicting, isn't it? Jonathan Edwards, he wrote an essay on helping the poor. Jonathan Edwards is, is writing in the 1800s, 1700s. And he wrote this in the essay, Objection. So these are common objections he wrote to serving the poor. Objection. I'd love to help the poor, but I can't afford it response. If we're never obliged to relieve others' burdens except when we can do it without burdening ourselves, how do we bear our neighbor's burdens when we bear no burden at all? What Edwards is saying, when we say we can't afford it, what we're saying is, I can't afford it without burdening myself. And that's Anybody that's ever tried to raise money knows this. You can actually raise a lot of money. And you can do it by gathering people who have means and and you can separate them from their money by helping them see that they're giving to a good cause. You can raise a lot of money. And you can tap into something. You can tap into a desire for people to feel good about themselves. You can do this. And so you can raise, there's a lot of money that gets raised for various causes where the people gave in a vainglorious way. They gave because they are able to say, you ever look at the list of donors and you go to colleges and things and you go to fundraisers and they've got the silver and the gold and, the, and their names are listed? It's vainglorious. Now, it's not wrong to have your name listed in case you're someone that has had your name listed as a gold donor for something. But my, my point is, though, if you give in such a way that, that, that it doesn't cost you anything, then you haven't done what Paul's talking about here. You haven't done that until it actually becomes a burden to you. And the only way you're going to do that is if Jesus changes your heart. If Jesus changes your life. Don't you see, Like this is like your real need for the gospel here. You can't do it unless Jesus changes your heart. We can't, bear one another's burdens. There's no way to help someone who's in trouble without bearing it. There's no way to help someone who's in financial trouble, which is the the, the issue that Paul's addressing here, without some of that burden falling on you. Has the Gospel so transformed you at the behavioral level? Has the Gospel so transformed you that you are willing to, to bear others' burdens. I can tell you that I've been thinking about this a lot, and I think even in pastoral ministry, I've been in pastoral ministry for, I have to do the math, 21 years. 21 years is a long time to do something, it makes me feel old. 10 years of having planted Brandywine Grace and And there's a part of me that has a hard time bearing one another's burdens. I can can do that if it doesn't cost me a lot. But if it's going to cost me a lot, then there's something in me that resists that. Because bearing one another's burdens is going to cost you in some way. How's it going to cost you? It might be financial, it might be emotional might be psychological, spiritual. What I need is the grace of God working in me that helps me to see that Jesus stopped at nothing. He made the greatest sacrifice that I might be set free from my sin and death and live with Him as His Son forever. When that motivates me, I can move out into relationships not looking for what I'm going to get from you, but what I can give to you. We do need help. The Gospel intends to transform us at the behavioral level, but for it to do that, it needs to transform us at the identity level. And so, Paul begins to speak of how we're transformed at the identity level. And he does that through speaking about what we boast in. Thanks, buddy. Now, before we move to boasting, let's just take one look at something because I think this is important. Paul does something confusing in verse 5 and in verse 4. He says, let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor for each one will have to bear his own load. Preachers like to gloss over difficult things. And I'm going to kind of gloss over this one. (laughs) But he just talked about bearing one another's loads. And bearing one another's burdens, actually. Now he says you're going to have to bear your own load. The word load there is not the same word as "burden." A burden is something that someone's trying to carry and they can't actually do it. It's beyond their ability. A load is not that. A load refers to like the bag you pack to go on vacation. It's something you can carry. You don't need help carrying it. But what we do is we... When God calls us to do certain things, if we're keeping in step the Spirit, uh, Isaac spoke about listening to the Spirit and then obeying the Spirit. And so what the Spirit says to Isaac, we've got the Word, but he might be calling Isaac to something that Isaac needs to obey. He might call me to something that I need to obey. He's calling all of us to all these different things. And then he gives us the grace to respond in a way he wants us to respond. Another way of saying it is, God has given each of us some luggage to carry. It's not a burden. It's it's luggage that you're called to carry. But what we do is we look at what God has given other people to carry, and then we get banged out of shape. Because we look at your load and we like that one better. We look at other people and we say, we compare ourselves to others. Do you remember the disciples did this? The disciples did this. Jesus makes some kind of mysterious comment about the, the disciple John. About he's They're not going to die. He's going to be caught up. Like, what? Peter doesn't like it. Peter makes reference to how, Jesus makes reference to how Peter's going to go out. Peter is such an interesting character. You know, Jesus says, I shouldn't do this, real quick. Jesus tells him that, you know, I'm going to die and you guys are all going to leave me. Peter says, no, I'm not. Well, I don't know about the rest of these guys, but I'll die for you. He ends up denying Jesus three times. And and his fear was controlled by a 12-year-old girl. And, and they say that when Fox's Book of Martyrs speaks about Peter, that when he was going to suffer persecution, and they came to get him, he took off. I don't want to die for Jesus. Then when they finally caught up with him, and he knew he was going to be crucified, he says, turn me upside down, because I'm not worthy of being crucified the same way that my Savior was. See, see, Peter is a, is a mix I like Peter cuz I can get up inside that weirdness. But Peter says Peter says you're telling me how I'm going to go out? What about him? How's he going to go? What's going to happen with him? And Jesus says you worry about yourself. Do you guys know the Chronicles of Narnia? You know how Aslan will never tell someone else's story. He only ever tells your story. Because we're too busy looking at other people's loads and what Jesus is saying is I've given you grace to carry yours. That's a little bit on that bearing our own load. Probably doesn't satisfy. But it's at least something. You can go home and say the pastor didn't gloss over it. How do we move from being conceited and proud and self-righteous and self-pitying and consumed from self to being loving and serving of others. How do you do that? It's solved at the identity level. And it's solved in what you boast in. Look at what Paul says, verses 12 through 15. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in church. What does he say? In the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul's solution for the resistance that takes place in us at the behavioral level to actually love and serve others is the cross of Jesus Christ. The Bible's solution for sinful humanity is the cross of Jesus Christ. This is where Paul is ending this letter, speaking about who he is and who they are in Christ. What will change you boasting in the cross of Christ? So the question becomes what are you boasting in? If you're conceited, you boast in everything else but the cross of Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, you boast in Jesus. What are you guys boasting in? First things first, Paul says, or last things last, you might say. Boasting in the cross of Christ. It's understanding the cross of Christ. We'll use Peter as another example. In the Gospels, there's an account, Matthew 16, where uh, Jesus hears the crowds identifying him. We think, he's the, we think he's this, we think he's this, we think he's this person, we think he's this, we think he's this, we think he's this. And he says to the disciples, who do you guys say that I am? Peter jumps out. You're the Messiah. You're the Savior. And how Jesus respond? Blessed are you, Peter. Because flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. The Spirit of God revealed that to you, and you're right. And then, do you know what happened after that? Then Jesus begins to describe for him what's going to happen to the Messiah. What's going to happen? I'm going into Jerusalem. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die on the cross and be raised again. Peter, he should have kept his mouth shut. He was on a roll. And he says, No way. No way is that going to happen to you. Rejected, crucified? No way. And Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan whoa, you talk about moving to the head of the class and then like to the depths of hell in one swift move? Get behind me, Satan. If you get the doctrine of the cross wrong, which is what Peter's getting wrong, he doesn't understand rejection, he doesn't understand the crucifixion, he doesn't understand resurrection, he doesn't understand that what Jesus is going to do is what he needs. If you get that wrong... You are completely lost. Worse than that, you are a missionary of Satan's. You are in the grips of Satan. You are demonic. You are satanic if you don't get the doctrine of cross right. right. So it's extremely important. 50%, you read the Gospels. You ever notice this? You read the Gospels, and so much of the Gospels is spent talking about the last few days or the last week of Jesus' life. If you read a book like that, if you read an autobiography of someone or a biography of someone, and most of the book was the last week of their lives, you'd ask for your money back. That's not good biography. The Gospels are not biographies. But why do they spend, why do some of the Gospels spend almost 50% of the, the Gospel account on the last week of his life? It's because the cross is extraordinarily important. If you don't understand the Gospel, everything that we just read in Galatians 6 is impossible. It's only possible if you understand the Gospel. Paul boasts... If you've read his letters, he does this a lot. In Philippians, he talks about boasting in the cross of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 1-2, he talks about boasting in the cross of Christ. Romans 3-4, and 4, he's boasting in the cross of Christ. Here in Galatians 6, he's boasting in the cross of Christ. If you boast in Christ, you're a new creation. If you boast in anything else, you're conceited. That's his point. Now, what is this boasting? What is this? Boasting came around or was, the, was understood in that day and age as something you did in warfare. This is how you got, get guys pumped up to run into almost certain death. You start doing some boasts. Football teams do this kind of stuff all the time. You're trying to get yourself hyped. And so you've got to gotta, gotta boast in something, How do you get people to say, let's go? You got to give them something to boast in. Remember the story of David and Goliath? They boasted. The Philistines had something that nobody else had. They had a Goliath. And so they boast. They come out and they say, we have. Goliath, we have weapons, we have this, and we will defeat you. Ah! Goliath is a good person to have on your team. What did David do? David boasted. David comes out, it says he was a boy. He comes out, and we get the story kind of wrong because we make it all about David. It's not about David at all, but David comes out and makes a boast. He runs out. Goliath looks at him without any armor on, and he says, you come at me with sticks and stones? like a, You send a dog out here to fight me? Are you kidding me? Do you see who I am? I'm going to feed your flesh to the dogs. Woo! And David says, you're boasting, but I boast. And I'm saying it's not me, but I serve a God that will crush you And so I'm coming to you in his name. And he takes off running. He's built himself up. He's got confidence. He lets go. I'm sure he went, ah! And went running. And big Goliath falls. He's boasting. What are you boasting in? What you boast in is what you have your identity in. What do you take confidence in? What gets you ready for the day? What gets you ready for the... for life what gets you ready on monday morning where do you find your confidence is it in your money is it in your looks is it in your is it in the place that you live is it in the power you've accumulated is it what is it in if it's in anything other than christ you're vainglorious if it's in christ you're a new creation what are you boasting in guys famous boast i love this i just had to read some shakespeare i'm moving towards the end here I had to read you guys a little Shakespeare. Henry V, St. Crispin's Day speech. You want to know what a boast is? Here it is. And gentlemen in England, now abed, will think themselves accursed they were not here, and hold their manhoods cheap whilst any speak who fought with us upon St. Crispin's Day. Oh, that's good writing. What do you boast in? Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Let me just read this to you. Thus says the Lord Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me. There's so many things to boast in. You can boast in your wisdom, you can boast in your might, you can boast in your riches. What should we boast in? The cross of Jesus Christ. You have to boast in something. Everyone finds their confidence in something. What are you boasting in? What are you finding your confidence in? Where do you look for confidence? Where do you look for validation? Where do you look for strength? What Paul is saying is you need to look to Jesus for those things. Look at social media. This is why I don't like social media anymore. It's full of boasts. Humble brags. What does the Bible say? What does Paul say? Philippians 3.3 We boast in Christ and we put no confidence in the flesh. 1 Corinthians 1.31 Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. So how can you grow in your understanding of what it means to boast in the Lord. It's to meditate on what Christ has done for you. Paul says it this way, the world's been crucified to me and I to the world. What does that mean? That the world's been crucified? No, what he's saying there is the world is dead to me. The world, I, I am not looking to the world for anything anymore. The world couldn't give me enough money. The world couldn't give me enough sex. The world can't do anything for me because I've placed my confidence in Christ. So money doesn't doesn't hold the kind of value that it used to hold in my life. So if money's not where I find my confidence, what can you do with it? You can bear other people's burdens with it. You can give it away because it's not where you put your identity. How about love? You can actually love, truly love and serve other people because you don't get what you need from them. You get what you need from Jesus. So you can actually be criticized and not completely fall apart. Your approval doesn't come from others. It comes from Jesus. When you get that right, you're able to move out into relationships and actually give of yourself and love. Boasting doesn't just take place on the inside, though it takes place on the outside. Let me ask the band to return. I just want to end with this illustration. It's, it's so good. But it's an example of boasting in the cross of Christ. Um, I want to read one section, but I'll just tell to set the story up. The story goes that Dick Lucas, he's an older man now. I think he's still alive. He's uh, a preacher from London, great preacher. He's written a lot of, uh, done a lot of uh, talks and writing on preaching and he's just a phenomenal preacher. But he tells a story of in 1955, he was in Cambridge and Billy Graham was coming to preach to a large group of people. And Billy Graham was really nervous. He was really nervous because he was going to Cambridge where all these eggheads and smart people were. And, and the, 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 the reports were, the, as they were preparing for him to arrive in Cambridge, that those people at Cambridge were saying, what in the world is this, this Billy Graham coming over here for? This backwoods country, heck, uh, fundamentalist. What in the world has he got to show us? How in the world is he going to enlighten us? On anything. And so Billy Graham was really nervous about going over there. And so he did what a lot of people do. He started trying to think about ways he could appear smart. So he starts really uh, looking at Kierkegaard and the, ph- the great English philosophers. And he's got all these quotes piled up. And Dick Lucas, who was there, said Billy Graham got up on the first night and, and started to preach and he was using all these quotes and all. And Dick Lucas, who was there, said, it was terrible. It was terrible. And they're thinking, this is Billy Graham. He's got all kinds of people flying. And, 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 and it's actually confirmed in Billy Graham's biography. He speaks about this, this period, of this moment in his life. Second night, he gets up. Double thumbs down. Like, just bad. Three nights, four nights. Just horrible he's not affecting anybody but he's trying so hard fifth night he's spending some time with the lord and he feels like the lord convicts him why are you doing this why are you trying to be somebody that you're not why don't you just boast in the cross of jesus christ so billy graham gets up on the fifth night and starts talking about the blood of jesus as what you need to be saved. And he walks like through Genesis, all the way through the Bible, just this very crude message on the blood of Jesus. And this is how Lucas describes that. I'll never forget that night. I was in a totally packed chancel. I don't know what that is sitting on the floor with the regent's professor of divinity from Cambridge, sitting on one leg, and the chaplain of a college, a future bishop, on the other. Now, both of these were good men in many ways, but they were completely against the idea that we needed salvation from sin by the blood of Christ. And that night, dear Billy got up, started in Genesis, and went right through the whole Bible, talking about every single blood sacrifice you can imagine. The blood was just flowing all through great St. Mary's. Everywhere, for an hour. And both of my neighbors were so totally embarrassed by this crude proclamation of the blood of Jesus Christ. It was everything they disliked and everything they dreaded. But at the end of the sermon, to everybody's shock, about 500 young men and women came forward to commit their lives to Christ. At that time, the entire student body was about 10,000 people. Lucas remembered a young curate, a Cambridge graduate, some years after. He was at a Birmingham cathedral, and over a cup of tea, he said to him, where did Christian things begin for you? I love that. Should should ask people that question. It's a very British way of saying it. Where did Christian things begin for you? Oh, the man said, Cambridge, 1955. When? Billy Graham. What night? The last night. How did it happen? All I remember is I walked out of great St. Mary's Chapel thinking for the first time in my life that Christ really died for me. You want to live a life that makes a difference? Boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen.